Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. Today's episode is a writing ramble. That is an episode that I haven't planned and I'm not going to edit afterwards. Uh, it's not necessarily... Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, I want, I want to pitch it as if it is, you know, to give it the sort of f- a, a frisson of danger and uh, of risk, a sort of perf- a high wire act, a performance that where you listen to it and you go, and and you, and you, and you feel that excitement of, I suppose, the excitement they talk about when people who, who live theatre lo- lovers, and so I love the excitement of live. Theatre. What's the excitement of live theatre? Well, I suppose it's that the person, the actor on stage that you paid money to see, uh, might might get it wrong. Is that I, that's what I, I I've never really understood what the excitement of live theatre is or what people mean by that. Um, for me, I find live theatre incredibly stressful to watch as an audience member because I'm conscious that I'm watching just normal humans up there trying to remember large sections of script and then deliver them without making errors and they're all independent interdependent so if one person messes up they might need an understudy to shout something and it's not real uh but somebody in the audience could also that's completely out of their control one or more people in the audience could ruin it by having a phone go off i mean it wouldn't ruin it but it would undermine some of the performance and they can't control that someone in the audience might become disruptive uh, or you know, start shouting things. Sometimes you get people in audiences to plays or live poetry or theatre that are uh, maybe drunk or n- not very well mentally who might start remonstrating with the police. They, they break that implicit social contract that allows live performance to happen. And because it's a play, though, they can't, the people on stage can't really respond without shattering the the, the dramatic illusion uh, uh, and, and and so is that the excitement that we're that you just sit there continually distracted from the story and the relationships between the characters by thinking shit what if it all kicks off or if something goes wrong what if a, a a lighting cue fails or is missed or comes on late in a way that you know feels like a record has has jumped skipped and then everyone on the dance floor was like slightly sort of bummed out by the beat having having been uh, in in some way altered briefly you know is that I, I i never that's what i'm hoping to create for you is just a you you can't really concentrate on any of my content whatsoever because you're continually caught up in this low-level anxiety that I'm going to stack it and you're not even physically present with me so whereas maybe in a live performance maybe in certain genres you can step in and go and kind of cheer and and will the person on stage onwards by 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 you know looking encouraging by clapping by cheering so maybe you help them rally so you've got at least a tenuous indirect form of influence over their well-being you can act 
And this you can't because it's already a fait accompli. But by the time you listen to this, it's already happened and the communication is only one way. So it's like you're like the ghost at the feast. You you it's like you've travelled back in time, but you are there as a kind of spectre who who can't influence anything and, and, and you just watch helplessly as the events unfold that's what i'm trying to do with the medium and that's uh hopefully why you're here now and i want to talk about writing and i am going to do and i say this at the beginning of every episode i'm going to do some uh, episodes looking at people's first pages just had an exceptionally uh busy and quite stressful uh couple a couple of weeks of home life that have meant uh, I, I haven't been able to put the time towards those things that I would have liked. So I'm doing this episode because also I just haven't checked, had time to check in. I sometimes talk at the beginning of episodes and that's, I always talk at the beginning of episodes. That's what signals the beginning of an episode. Otherwise it would just be silence, wouldn't it? There'd be just a long John Cage style uh, lacuna with some, I suppose, crackly or hissing artifacts that are created uh, through the uh, rendering of a MP3, but um, that no, I, I I always talk at the beginning, but I, I I often don't get as much time as I'd like because I don't want to waffle and introduce so much that that you don't get to the um, interview itself. And I've been really enjoying doing my interviews, and I've got some more lined up, and I'm looking forward to sharing those with you because they're just partly for selfish reasons. They're very valuable for me because I get to speak to people often that I haven't spoken to, bef to before or haven't spoken to in a long time uh, where I get to uh, needle them on their craft and then hear the answers so I'm learning stuff just as much as you might be from what from what they say because <laughs> as I've said many times before I'm I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing as a writer I'm still helplessly uh, brachiating from slender teetering branch to slender teetering branch above a jungle floor replete with serpents and I'm doing my best and I it just it means a lot to be able to speak to people who reason insists must be my peers but uh you know largely have a bigger profile than me but I you know, I get to speak. That sounded more bitter than I meant it to. I was trying to be. Every time I tried to sound modest or self-deprecating, <laughs> I, I sound like a crabby old man cursing his luck, shaking his fist at the sky. But I'm genuinely, uh, it's, I just really like it. It's nice to have a, I, I think it's a very mundane observation to say that it's nice in to, if you in whatever profession you work in to have a kind of water cooler where you can talk with, people who have some shared interest in it who have some shared experiences and who might be able to empathize with what you're going through and share advice and just make you feel at the very least make you feel less crazy but often show you a different uh, a variety of experiences and I think more the more we uh, I mean like you and I can broaden the ecology of our professional and aesthetic sentiment in terms of what a story should be and 
what it means to be getting down and dirty in the grubby capitalist system that is our primary means of conveying the art we produce to an audience yeah i think it's important to hear from a variety of people because if you were just hearing from me you would only get my opinions on it and my opinions are brilliant let's be honest pretty cool interesting truthful and universally applicable but occasionally just occasionally someone else might have a scrap of a crumb of worth to add to the conversation no these are people who often have got miles more experience than me or just different experience than me or doing something different and hopefully through this polyphony of voices we can i can create can just help nudge you towards understanding your own writing to try you can kind of triangulate where you are in your writing journey where you what you want to do and and sometimes by negative sometimes you hear someone talk about a story and you'll go I don't agree with that at all you know I don't agree with that at all that doesn't feel in any way concordant with what I want to produce with my art someone will talk about it in I don't know maybe they talk about it in very sort of lofty noble terms about what writing should be and they give a bunch of examples of their favorite authors and you go I hate all those stories that you've talked about I just did not enjoy them I bounced off them and I don't have any of those aspirations for my work what I want to do is that I want to recreate the feeling that I had as a kid going to the cinema and seeing an amazing adventure and being transported out of my life into that moment and that thing that makes people smile and go wow and feel like they're somewhere else that's what I want to do which I think is just as noble and lofty as high art. But maybe also, you know, you're not that bothered about creating Hollywood moments and popcorn moments for people. Maybe you're interested in what you can do with language and how you can explore some very small, quiet moments. They may be the kind of things that you've grown up feeling, you know, aren't worthy of writing about that's the other side to it isn't it that sometimes you can feel in a world of sort of superhero movies and epic narratives you look at what you want to write about and maybe you want to write about you know a family living in a cottage on a peninsula and you know one character wandering out of the house a child wandering out of the house each morning and you know going down and beachcombing during one summer um you know their relationship with their parents during that time and you know the little that they're picking up about their parents relationship and and what's going on there also while they're finding you know seaweed and drift seeds and the marine wildlife and the kind of weird and wonderful things that happen along that bay that's a very those are very small well in one sense they're small narratives aren't they maybe you're interested in the in what language can do to evoke that and actually what you want to give to the reader you're not quite sure how to articulate it but it's kind of a feeling and a sense of place and a sense of emotions and maybe there are big themes attached to those or maybe 
the book is the thing in itself and it would be somewhat reductive to start breaking it down into thematic resonances and ideological messages there's all, there's all, all sorts of ways you can approach a piece of writing and what you want to do and it may be that across a career or across projects you you want to switch between a variety of different purposes and I hope that that's all right as well I mean like I have to say if I had been recording this episode four days previously I think and this is kind of what I wanted to get around to talking about I guess because it feels like it carries some value maybe that there's something in it that you can kind of unwrap and take away or use or apply or learn from which I suppose I never record these searching for those nuggets really because I think you can end up with a little bit of I think it can skew the narrative away from honesty and obviously being entertaining and useful if so, if so if I was recording one of these and it was entertaining useful but fundamentally dishonest I actually don't think anyone would complain that would probably be better than honest but useless and unentertaining right uh although I think that there's something about uh honesty and authenticity that's uh, rare enough that it probably is intrinsically useful when we reflect experiences honestly to each other but I think there's a problem in a lot of creative writing advice and I, I sort of touched on this a little bit at the beginning of my latest book Coward I'm just just swinging round to grab a copy just to remind myself of what I wrote but I, I, I sort of flag it at the beginning uh, of the book coward is my book about anxiety and panic and my experiences of those things i'm not going to dive into the book now but just in the introduction i talk a bit about this um sociologist called murray s davis who he wrote a paper in the 1970s with the brilliant title that's interesting exclamation mark and um the reason i opened talking about this is because he's got it's a, it's a really lovely paper it's a really fun sociology paper which i don't think uh, is true of many sociology papers and and, and to be fair it is it, not a sign that it necessarily has anything of value in it because ironically the paper that's interesting is an example of the phenomenon that Murray S. Davis lays out, which is, uh, he says, quote, it's long been thought that a theorist is considered great because his theories are true, but this is false. A theorist is considered great not because his theories are true, but because they are interesting, end quote. So what he's then goes on to explain is basically that a lot of theories that that, that catch fire and are spread through academia and through a society don't get popular because people they're because they're well argued because they've got reams reams of data backing them up because they there's indisputable evidence but because that's the stack of books that I had piled up behind me and a whole load of board games that just hit the floor <laughs> I'm living I need to say to you now like I'm living in this room i review board games for tabletop gaming magazine and write a column for them every month and i'm also working on a book about tabletop games and my room feels like the kind of room that 
people in hazmat suits have to go through after you know after i've been found on my kitchen floor with my face eaten by my 50 cats like it is genuinely i am so i look poorly the way this room is laid out there are two huge sets of uh shelves that are covered in board games there's a set of uh there's a there's of filing cabinets that have been were originally for sort of papers and grown-up stuff but have been completely colonized by board games i put up another really long set of bookshelves along my back wall that is mostly in in fairness is mostly books but some of those are uh like dungeons and dragons manuals and then it started to be colonized by board games as well and then there wasn't enough room so there are now multiple towers of board games over the floor that I have to weave between in that kind of like nightmarish sort of it's not quite a fire hazard but it's there there are there are towers of board games teetering towers of board game boxes that I have that there's a narrow corridor that I can get through to get to my desk and on top of those I had a big stack of copies of coward and that's what i just upset anyway what i was saying is that um so that's that's how i live right now and that's kind of how i it is how i write you know like i i I get obsessed with topics and i get very lost in them and then i pile stuff up and pile stuff up and then i feel overwhelmed by how much there is I, i guess like somebody doing a phd right you you start to get overwhelmed by your growing knowledge of just how diverse and complex uh, and crunchy a field is and then you start to doubt your ability to and your right to to write about it because you know finally how stupid you are um in comparison to the wealth of information out there about the topic you you start to realize i'm not qualified about this in a way that you don't when you you don't feel like that this is the what some you know the the, the dunning kruger effect which is another example of what murray was talking about and i am going to get back to that but that you that the more you plunge into and this is true of writing novels as well but the more you plunge into your book the less qualified you feel to do it because you start to get an increasingly accurate sense of the magnitude of the task you've set yourself and when i was just going i could write a book about, book about board games I, I just kind of thought well yeah because I play some board, I play a bunch of board games and I'm interested in it. It'd be it'd be a piece of piss. And of course it's not. If you care about it. If you don't, you can produce one of many board game books out there that I've read that are extraordinarily light on content and full of things that are just wrong that have been cribbed from Wikipedia. Uh and just feel loveless and drab and I love board games and i'm absolutely bored rigid by them i'm sorry and i can this is my judgmental side coming out now but fucking hell fucking hell is there some dog shit out there just like i should be the target audience for this book entirely about board games and it's and it's and, and it's so dry um, i should say there are some ones that i think most people would consider dry that i actually quite like such as david parlett's history of 
games are is you know it's very technical book with lots of diagrams of different types of roll and move chase games and games of capture and histories of different games i really like that and i fully acknowledge that that is not for everyone because it is quite specialist in what it goes into but god almighty there's some boring books there are some rotten books people who just cannot write and do not seem to care but if you care about your book you care about your novel and the characters in it if you care about the non-fiction book you're writing and you want to get stuff right that the more you write the more you feel like you are not the person to write this you the more you feel like my god oh this is embarrassing and i mean that's how i felt writing about anxiety as well even though like quite clearly I'd suffered from anxiety for much of my life, suffered from panic attacks. I had some kind of uh, rhetorical authority, as we say, like, am I allowed to write about this? Yeah. Uh, But if you give if you give a flip about accuracy, you're going to get stressed quite quickly because it turns out we don't have a fundamental model of the human brain. Anyway, look, so Marius Davis was saying that the kind of theories that take off are not necessarily true. That's neither here nor there, but they're interesting. And he defined interesting theories as ones which uh, violate weekly a weekly held belief in the reader while flattering and confirming a strongly held belief. If, you know, a theory is too preposterous, it does too, it, it does violence to some strongly held belief we have. Like, if, if, if I was giving you a theory and it said, like, the poor deserve to be poor, you might go, well, that's that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. So you'd reject it as being interesting because it was just absurd. It it, it did gross uh, violence to a deeply held belief of yours that the poor do not deserve to be poor or that it's not about laziness or something like that. You know, if I was giving you something that would, did gross violence to your sense of ethics or politics, you would not think it was interesting. You wouldn't go, ooh, here's an interesting theory. You'd go, no, that's nonsense. That's just preposterous. That's silly. If it doesn't do violence to at least a mildly, a weakly held belief of yours, uh, then it's not you're not going to think it's interesting because you'll go, well, that's obvious. So if I just said to you, it's it, I've got this theory that um, we feel better when we're well rested, you'd go, well, that's obvious. That's not an interesting theory. So, but what he's saying is that when you know you have a I mean, the theme the formulation you know behind a theory might be something like what appears to be X is actually non-X, or what appears to be non-X is actually X, or what appears to be an individual phenomenon is actually a group phenomenon, or what appears to be a group phenomenon is actually an individual phenomenon. So, for, I'll give you an example of a an current in right. So, uh, Freud really good example and he's saying what appears to be fear is actually sexual desire you know something like that and you go and you go well that's that's interesting he's saying well maybe you've got feelings that you don't realize about and of course some people reject 
uh, rejected Freud at the time because he was saying things that violated some strongly held belief of people, which was that they didn't have sexual feelings towards their parents. But it, his his ideas were interesting, right? They were interesting enough to get people to listen. And it didn't matter that he had no evidence for them and they were bollocks. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that Freud's theories like were just utter bollocks with no, nothing really supporting them because they were interesting. And that's true of a lot of books that come out now. That's true of a lot of pop psych books that will say, you know, if you have, if you consume taurine, a taurine supplement every day, that's going to slow the aging process. You probably don't have any particularly strong views about taurine, except you might know that it's a supplement, that it's in, it, it features in Red Bull. That, you might know that. You might know, well, taurine is the same root as taurus, meaning bull, and that's why Red Bull's called Red Bull, because it's supplemented with taurine. But I didn't... I, di I currently had a weekly held belief that taurine doesn't have any effect on ageing, and now you're saying it does? Mm. And that then maybe flatters your strongly held belief that there are ways and hacks that we can... Uh, slow our met the, 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 a metabolic rate of aging or something like that anyway look, the, my point is the reason i'm bringing this up and the reason i'm telling you about this now and wasting your time with this crap is because we have this problem in creative writing and that problem is the problem of writing advice gaining currency not because it's true but because it's interesting it, it, we are so prone to sharing writing tips and people spreading little bits of writing wisdom that are nothing to do with and it's difficult to prove that something is effective but we share stuff because it sounds cool or interesting or counterintuitive right we people were saying show don't tell for ages right you should show don't tell and then people started going actually i think it's really important that you do tell and it sounded they rarely made like a good case for it or they made like a partial case or they deliberately misinterpreted or maybe just out of ignorance misinterpreted what show don't tell means but they would you know make this argument but the point was it sounded interesting because it was violating this belief that like most of us are not that attached to like a particular piece of creative writing but it, but it made it sound okay let me tell you I think you should tell. I think you should go to tell. Don't let yourself be held back by a show. Don't tell. Tell as much as you want. Narrate. Let yourself run free. And it doesn't really matter whether that piece of advice is true or false. What matters is that it violates an expectation which makes it interesting. And a lot of writers, when they're asked about because what do we want to do when we're asked for creative writing advice what both as you know a professional writer but also if you're just passing on writing advice you've heard elsewhere well really you want to gain a little bit of social capital by saying something interesting you don't want to share a piece of writing advice that makes people hostile or bored or, you know, you don't want them to go, that's nonsense, you've damaged your credibility in my eyes. And you don't want 
to share a piece of writing advice that people go well that's of course that's very obvious and what you have not added value you don't seem particularly that, that why we why are you telling me this so there's a selection pressure and, and what's going to be most memorable to you well it's often going to be the stuff that seems non-obvious right and unfortunately that none of those qualities i've just talked about have any relationship to truth or even utility even helpfulness they're just about like how the selection pressure is like how entertaining and surprising is the tip the writing tip as if you can as if you can talk about writing in the abstract and then boil it down to tips and I don't mean to sound like disgusted in some sort of snooty gatekeepery way. Although, I'll tell you what, sometimes you need fucking gatekeepers. That's the whole point. Like of that, that, that That's how civilization started is we built walls. And then there was a gate that you could let people in and out. And gatekeepers watched to try and keep the people inside these, that, 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 that settlement safe. Right. That's what that's what gatekeepers did. Like sometimes, like all communities need gatekeepers. Sometimes you want like to keep out, say, say the racists or the sexists, right? You want to keep out toxic people who are horrible. That's a form of gatekeeping, and I'm sorry, it's good, okay? And uh, you know, you might call it, you might bet, might better use the term elitism. And suggest that there's some people who are going to hold on to their power. But I would suggest, right, that that, 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 that the real elitism is trying to work your way up the ladder by coming up with the coolest sounding writing tips. These little capsules of wisdom that aren't, in fact, helpful in any way, shape or form. They're just... You, people will say to me, I hear so many times, but you know, like rules are made to be broken, aren't they? No, no, they're not. No, they're no, they're not. What a, what a stupid, stop trying to be like Malcolm Gladwell and, and saying, here's something. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell's entire career, right, is based on him saying, oh, maybe, actually, at least presenting things as being counterintuitive often completely erroneously right often saying things that either aren't really counterintuitive like mm. well because yeah, what you would say is that you would sorry i'm bashing malcolm gladwell now but let's have at it i'm sure he'll survive he, him saying actually you need to become an expert at something you need ten thousand hours of 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 training and now it doesn't it doesn't violate our our strongly held belief that to get good at something you need a lot of practice or you will get better at something if you have a lot of practice but it might be sort of like violating a more weakly held belief that there's some nebulous idea of talent certainly that's maybe a bit counterintuitive that's what he claims but it's also violating our weakly held belief that you can't put a number on it and he goes 10,000 and that's bollocks that is not backed up by research at all but it sounded snappy and then he can say something and it sounds authoritative because he's committing to something specific, right? Because if I come on this show, and I do it a lot, actually, and I go, oh, you know, it's complicated. I sound less authoritative 
then I go, right, here's, here's five writing tips. I've been doing this. I've got over 100 hours of interviews and I boiled it down to five. And these are the writing tips that I, I swear by. If you do these, you will finish your novel within the year. And I'm going to give you all five now and uh, I'll walk you through each one. But they are cast iron. They are inviolable. Every single author on my shelves who's sold more than 100,000 copies of a book has done these five things in their writing practice. I've got to say, you probably... I mean, I know because it's me, I wouldn't be able to pull that off, but it sort of sounds... You probably like you probably stick around to hear what they were, Right? And it sounds authoritative, and it's and it's not. And, and actually, the less experienced you are at writing, the more that would sound believable. If you turned up for your first day and someone was like, "I'll give you the five. And, and to be honest, you can you could go home for the rest of this. We'll do some writing things, but I'll give. I, I want you to go away with these five things because if you just get these five rules, this is going to push you through your your book. And not only that, but it's going to be good, and you're not going to find it difficult. You'll believe that. Right. Like if you have not or you want to believe it, it's and it does sound interesting. I'll, like, I'll stick around and hear it. And it's nonsense. It's total nonsense. And it's why the most common response on any interview I have with authors, with artists, with poets, with uh, with, you know, even with sort of agents and publishers and all this. The most common response I've had from people. Is no, it doesn't. Is they'll give a really insightful, authentic, honest answer where they're feeling out what they think about it and they're trying to put it into words as honestly as they can, accounting for the ways in which it might not be true and flagging that up. And then they finish it and they go, "Sorry, I feel like I completely rambled there. That was away from your the original question." They always apologise and they'll apologise for rambling. And no, that's when you're just. Some things in life are not amenable to being encapsulated in a one or two sentence soundbite. You know what sticks really, you know what loves soundbites? Depression. Depression loves soundbites. That's when your brain will be going, oh, you're so useless. Oh, you'll never, you'll, you'll, you'll never succeed at this. You should give up. Little, little, quick, simple absolute sound bites that's what depression is amazing at those and that's why so much of cbt cognitive behavioral therapy for all its limitations and i do think it is a useful but uh limited uh modality that has definite value but is one of a suite of interventions that most people need but like a lot of cbt is about you know metacognition the thinking about thinking and about you making sure that your thoughts are sort of in line with reality and learning to be sort of a critical thinker and apply skeptical thinking to your own self-talk which i just think is you know that's that's super reasonable and a good thing for us all to to do even if we're not clinically unwell but a lot of cbt is about taking these little slogans and going how do i know that's true if it were true, is that a problem? Am I sure it's true? Is it true all the time? What's my evidence for it? Is that is it an exaggeration? Do I want to say maybe? Am I predicting the future here? What's my track record like with that? Are there other ways to approach this? Can I think creatively about it? Uh, there's all sorts of ways in which you start to 
chip away at your uncertainty. But then instead, and then you're like, oh, I'm so useless. And then your challenge to that automatic thought in CBT would be something like, well, I don't, I'm not feeling, my mood isn't feeling high right now, which may be affecting my my view of myself and I'm not feeling great about how this chapter is going I've felt that way before and stuff has often turned out all right sometimes stuff has been all right and it's just been my mood that's coloring how I'm doing it may be that there is a specific part of this chapter a line a direction it's taking that um actually my critical faculties are working brilliantly and they've spotted and I've caught that and because this chapter is not me but it's just something that is in progress I can later go back and change that or I could try and change that now. Maybe if I could identify what is making me feel uncomfortable, then I could deal with that. Um, but it's certainly not true that I'm useless. I've got people who love me uh, as a human being. I'm inherently valuable. I don't have to do I don't have to tap dance to prove myself to the world. Uh, so that's a label that has not been true. I've been valuable since I was born and, you know, my parents held me. I, it was that's they wouldn't have characterized me as useless a baby can't do a bunch of stuff that doesn't make it useless or without value it's we know intuitively that it's perfect uh in the sense that any human is you know valuable and beautiful and perfect just as they are none of that is very conducive to sloganeering that's what reality is like is uh, our language is imprecise enough that we have to do a patchwork job you know we have to slowly accrete these big flotillas of words all strapped together to approximate and approach something like the infinite and formerly uncapturable nature of lang of, of reality right like language can only do a kind of like low fidelity uh mimesis of what reality is and try try selling that to a to a to a to a drunk stand-up gig crowd on a friday night and see how it goes down like that's it, it, it we don't want to hear it we want to hear slogans and i want to hear slogans right i and and, and, so, and there's a time and a place for that but what i'm saying is creative writing pedagogy suffers massively from something that has existed before tiktok but i'm sure that tiktok plays right into which is very quick tips instead of uh the practice of cultivating and sharpening the fidelity of our critical faculties so we can reflect on our work and think about what we want to do you know we're constantly being pulled in different directions about what it should be and there's marketing campaigns and we think oh i don't choose books based on marketing campaigns but it seeps in should i be doing this is this what the world wants what's expected of me what's expect what do my readers want what are people going to like me for what are people going to buy what's going to make professionals say that they like my work you know you're constantly being pulled and pulled and pulled by these different forces and it's very diff difficult in that cacophony to clear some space to think clearly and constructively 
about what you care about and what matters for you because none of those forces are serving you or at least none of them have your best interests as their number one priority and that's why I think it's so important for me to have like a variety of guests on because you will hear people that you resonate with you'll hear people that you don't particularly resonate with and both of those things are almost like it's almost like echo location they're almost like echoes coming back from different parts of the cave that give you a sense of where you are in relation to the cathedral like super hollow superstructure that is the world of creative writing and I want you to be able to go away from the show and write something that not only uh, is not like the work that I produce but maybe that I disapprove of maybe that I'd sneer at you know like I, I'm not I, I'm often if if not wrong then at least not the whole story you know I was at the UK Games Expo last weekend playing a bunch of games and sometimes I sit down with people and they suggest a game and get out a game that I instinctively decided I was not going to enjoy uh, maybe you know maybe it was a lighter game maybe the theme of the game seemed a bit silly or frivolous to me whatever I like silly frivolous themes but maybe just for whatever reason I decided I wasn't I wasn't going to enjoy it or it wasn't for me it wasn't my type of game and I'd say those occasions split fairly evenly between me playing it and going actually I do like this I was wrong I need to update my mental model of what I like and don't like because I, I, I often just get to dodge stuff I think I won't like and then I file that away as I don't, I don't like that but actually I didn't check that hypothesis against reality and now I have I realize it was wrong and I need to ch change my mental model and update it and bring it closer to reality with this new data because you know we have a our, our preconceptions bias our behavior and when we behave we're surreptitiously doing two things we are doing the behavior and we're collecting data on the results of that behavior and if you avoid doing something because you think you won't enjoy it, you never get to actually test whether you enjoy it. So that's number one. But and number two, I sometimes I would play them and I didn't enjoy them. But I'd see other people around the table having a lovely time. And I'd go, well, it's not enough to say that this is a shit game. Because I can't argue that people aren't enjoying it. And that's clearly what it was designed to elicit. So is it possible that there are a variety of possible experiences here and I'm not personally sharing in them, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only game in town. And I was kind of forced on multiple occasions to enlarge the locus of my critical empathy and accept that other people have and, and luckily i mean it's easy to do in a scenario where it, you know it's just it's kind of really mostly a question of taste of aesthetic taste of ludic preference uh it, 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 certain emotional sensibilities it's it's not a deep ideological rift i don't feel threatened or disempowered particularly by other people enjoying these things so it's actually it was is a good area of practice for me because i could allow that without feeling personally threatened or vulnerable for people to like games that i don't like 
but also it made me hold my own opinions a little more gently. And I think probably it would make me sound slightly, mildly less authoritative when I talked about those games now, because I would be saying, well, I didn't like it. Some people might. And that sounds, you know, can sound wishy-washy and mealy-mouthed and milk toast to be qualifying your opinions instead of saying, this is bad. Here's why. Right. Or this thing's amazing. And, 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 And holding space for this suite of different possible human responses and the vast diversity of human experience uh you know it it slows it it does sometimes slow down your uh your cert- level of certainty it does sometimes make you seem less authoritative but i think it's ultimately the most true and capacious and probably humane approach to any topic or subject and it's particularly un it's particularly hazard free in in an area like game aesthetics and things like that but that's what i would like for you really is to give you access to all these different points of view and ways of being some of the people say things that i don't particularly agree with in terms of their approach to writing or what a story should be or 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 their beliefs around stories and things like that and it's kind of because because it's not a it's it, I really like that I really like the idea that we can I think part of being a writer and I said this in a previous episode is about having kind of writing hot takes of stuff you don't like that you think a story shouldn't be something it, 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 in a way after everything I've just said about you know holding this wide space for loads of different possibilities of what a story could be and what people should like I think then you can actually be super opinionated when it comes to the page and go, I want to make this because I, like I was being earlier, right? Where I go, I hate this book. I hate it. I do that. I, I say these things sort of within the wider context of understanding and knowing and appreciating that there are many kinds of readers and the ecosystem creative ecosystem we have to accept that not everything was made for us and there are definitely people who are wading into criticism and just cannot understand why a book exists if they if they don't enjoy it they can't understand why the thing was made they're almost sort of outraged i've seen that with poetry especially people not able to understand that a poem was not made with them as the primary audience and they're always a white middle class man they're always a white middle class man and then they're outraged that a poem was not designed with them as the primary audience and they're like why does this thing exist well well, i don't like it so what's its purpose is it possible that there are that there's forms of art that you because of your life experience are unable actually to appreciate that there are a range of reactions that are unavailable to you, that there are a range of pleasures, in fact, that are unavailable to you because of some of the limits of your life experience. I, I And I think that's a that's a, an important uh, a, a epistemic seatbelt to have um, pulled across one's heart before going into you know the world of criticizing other things is going i there may be forms of sort of pleasures and forms of letting myself go that i uh, and ways of connecting 
with the experiences evoked in a piece of art or a game that are not available to me because of i don't mean this in some, some sort of stream extreme uh identitarian idpol way i just mean that like we do have it's just a, like a nerd thing right i could enjoy the super mario brothers movie in a way that most people can't because of my engagement because of my extreme literacy my extreme symbol literacy in the world of super mario brothers to, to which which verges on which verges on a kind of mania or psychosis is a kind of conspiratorial level of symbol literacy where one sees references everywhere in that piece of media that someone else wouldn't right that my dad wouldn't he would be able to follow the main story of that of that movie but he would not see the things that i saw because i have additional extra textual knowledge and so this is hopefully what these interviews offer and i should say as i said like four days ago and this i'm getting back to this now i am kind of slowly closing the parentheses four days ago this episode would have been a howl of existential rage uh, of agony uh in terms of my writing practice i was really struggling to get words down on the page i was having a horrible time really thought and I and I'm sure I will go back to that at some point because it's hard, you know, it's hard and I, I and it sucks. And I, uh, I I think there is some qualified and limited value in in flagging those moments up when they happen for me, just so you don't panic and lose your bearings if you ever find yourself in the same way. I I think I probably get this slightly more than other people, uh, or to a greater emotional intensity than some other people partly because i suppose of my general emotional disposition possibly because of my neurodivergent diagnosis because of my rainbow rare brain possibly possibly that affects my ability to regulate emotions and i can get a bit more stuck and be a bit more prone to rumination than other people but i hope that these things are still, uh, they're not discontinuous with your experience. They may be of a greater intensity, but in a sense, a kind of comic grotesque version of your experiences at the page just makes those things easier to see. Is, I, I, I'm hoping that they become almost like, like, you know, comic grotesques they become these kind of archetypal versions of something that you've experienced and through their cartoonish extremes uh, you are better able to see their contours and it also sort of defangs any moments of doubt or self-loathing or disappointment or lostness that you've experienced because you go well i'm you know this sucks but it's actually not as bad as tim and that that's that's nice to me that, that that pulls back some kind of utility from these genuinely distressing moments that i go through and that i you know of course they're overreactions of course they're overreactions i understand that um i understand that they're disproportionate 
and you know a few days ago I was just feeling really blue I'm really lost I'm really desperate for someone to come in and sort of you know just I, I guess just kind of parent me really I think we could all do with a kind of writing parent or a writing auntie or uncle uh, some kind of writing elder to come in and if not explicitly mentor us come in and say look you're doing oh that sucked look let's let's sit down I'm going to put the kettle on let's have a cup of tea and a and a nice biscuit let's get the nice biscuits out let's get out one of your favorite types of biscuit and I'll I'll, I'll pour some out onto a plate and you can take one and you can have some ni- a nice hot cup of tea or a coffee and just tell me how you're feeling and you're going to feel bad as you kind of tell you know what tell me what went wrong and let's go back through it you can tell me your feelings you can tell me what specifically was going on you know the sequence of events and you're going to feel bad while you're talking about it but i think once you've got it out then we can start the process of you starting to feel better and i just want you to know none of this matters in the long run and your well your self-worth is and your value is not contingent on any of it you know you're great and you're important and wonderful just because of your being like all of us want to hear that all of us want that little moment and all of us feel maybe crap because of other stuff going on other stresses and then it, it trickles down poisons our writing anyway but that's how i was feeling now i'm feeling more positive i've written some stuff i should say i'm not pleased with the stuff i've written especially i think it might be a bit crap it certainly has got flaws it's certainly waffly and it's not in the right order and i'm certainly worried about making sure it's all correct and i haven't made any huge blunders i'm certainly conjuring people in my mind who'll go oh you missed out this thing why didn't you mention that blah 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 it's boring it's boring why are you waffling no one wants to hear you talking about games i think especially with games you know them being one of my special interests and learning to shut up and learning to reflexively put myself down if i bring it up sorry i'm a nerd you know sorry this very boring thing continual sort of low level shame about liking it continually trying to misrepresent how much i love games and how important they feel to me continually trying to throw my passions and things that i care about under a bus as a self as as a sort of tactic of self-preservation right um it it's, it's not easy but I'm but I'm writing, and that feels miles better. I, I'm not in some place of ecstatic joy at the moment, but I'm writing, and I can cope with it, and it's okay. And I did. I, I you probably it would be good to have some kind of takeaway of what I do. You know, writing tip. I just moved to a different section and started writing that instead, in the hope that at some point in the future, having written some other sections, the bit that I was sort of umming and ahhing and dithering on the way that I should proceed will feel easier. And that maybe having done some of the other sections will suggest shapes or a voice will, the voice will come easier or 
that I'll have some other tent poles set up that will suggest where I'm moving towards and that will make it easier for me to sketch out the shape in between. So that's what I did. I just moved to another bit and started doing a bit that I thought I'd enjoy. There's this whole productivity tip that's, you know, that they call eat the frog. I think it's a Mark Twain quote or something. It's like if, if, you know, if you've got a list of things to do, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but if you've got a list of things to do and one of them involves eating a frog, then you should eat the frog first. And if you must eat two frogs, eat the biggest first. So the idea of like, just get the bad thing out of the way then it's over with and it's not hanging over you for the rest of your day or week. And I think there's probably some wisdom in that, but also the way that my brain works, I think I just would never do it. I do. Uh, and sometimes I don't, it's not as easy as just like holding your nose and doing a gross thing. Sometimes it's not that you have to eat a frog, it's that you have to do open heart surgery on someone you love <laughs> not literally i should say i'm using that as a metaphor in case you go well i understand why you had a hard week now tim no i what i'm saying is sometimes the thing is complicated and you're not wanting to do it is not just that it's it's not like just taking out it's not like just cleaning it's not like just scrubbing sheets that a, a, a fox has pissed all over while they were hanging up on the washing line and they really smell or like you've got to move a dead pigeon from the back garden and it's really making you feel horrible it, it, it it's not something that is like horrible but mechanically straightforward it's like i don't know what words to put in here and i'm scared that i'm going to do it wrong and make things worse and make things bad and it's making me feel scared like that's often how i feel and by starting with the easy things or the things I'm excited about, I start building back up my confidence. Now I feel more confident in myself as a writer, whereas before I was trying to force it and it it was making me feel worthless, you know. Or maybe not. It's maybe it's not fair to say it was making me feel. Here's me doing some CBT on the fly, right? It wasn't making me feel worthless, but I felt stressed and low and scared and threatened. Uh, when I couldn't articulate myself in a way that I felt was adequate and that reflected what I wanted to say and that I thought would be good in a final draft and I struggle with coming out with stuff and knowing it's not ready because I feel exposed because I feel like people will see that I can't actually write and that everything takes me literally years to to create and what a crazy thing to be a writer in the first place if you take so long and at an unsustainable pace what i'm saying is that i'm you know i'm i'm writing and i think that that's one way of of, of approaching stuff is to switch between uh, sections that you know to switch to a section that you're looking forward to writing or that you feel excited about or you might plausibly enjoy or that you have some sense of whether it's fiction or non-fiction, maybe you have some sense of this is what's got to happen in this scene. And you can just jump in and start writing that. And then you're doing something and that makes a huge difference. But I do think, I should say, I do think writing can be really hard and it can be harder for some of us than others. And if you find writing 
well, whether you find it difficult or you find it easy, you can come and join us on the Death of a Thousand Cuts uh, Discord server. People share their work, they talk about writing, they talk very openly about things that they're finding difficult. And writing, you know, can be difficult. And generally, so far, people have been pretty nice to each other. I don't think if you open up and talk about those things, um, I think you're unlikely to be ripped to shreds by an angry mob. But if you'd like to join us, um, it's free. There's no Patreon you have to sign up for. It's just there's a, if you go to the show notes of today's episode in the district description, you can click the link and come and join us. You need to download the Discord app if you haven't got it already. But it's just like a, it's like a little uh, chat room, basically, with little threads. And you'll be able to figure it out. And you can ask people if you want on there and they, they'll help you. Or you can um or you can just search Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord and you'll find it there and you'll find a link that you can join us at. If you like today's show, which was really was a, a, a ramble, wasn't it? But I, I like to think I got some stuff out there and, and, and also just hi. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh it's really nice to just check in and say how I'm getting on and reflect my own writing practice alongside all this, you know, all these things that found, feel a bit like writing salons. I I just like to talk about being a writer who exists in the world and you know is doing his best. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's good to just see the sort of that side of things really, which is often you know not dramatic but has various ups and downs. And at the moment, I'm kind of doing fine. Um, but um, if you if you like the show, you can um go on to my uh coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. There's also a link in the show notes to that. Drop a few beans. Just will help with uh, the show costs. I should have said at the beginning, actually, and I meant to say at the beginning. I just really, really want to say thank you so much to everyone who recently and over the years has stopped and taken time out to click the link and donate something to the show because there's no perks for anyone donating stuff it's literally just a voluntary kind of me you know passing around the hat at the end of the gig and if anyone wants to put something in they can and yeah the show wouldn't exist if uh, so many people hadn't been really generous and I I never thought when I started putting it up I know I just didn't think anyone would would donate because why would you because it's free um but loads of people have and thank you basically thank you very much it's allowed the show to keep going it's allowed me to cover my costs I don't really make anything out of the uh, doing this podcast except it's I just like doing it <laughs> which is enough for me as long as I can cover my costs which I can do at the moment so that's thank you um that's it that's the entire show also i've got books out you could buy them there'll be links in the show notes to that that always supports me but however i hope that's sort of been nice and vaguely useful to you or just interesting to follow my train of thought as i work these things out i want to give honest advice on this show won't always be intrinsically interesting but hopefully it will be useful or at least it's gonna make you feel more confident in articulating how you feel about about your writing about creating and what's important to you and what you want to get out of it which may be a career it may be articulating and refining some thought 
uh, and I'm really getting it, getting to the bottom of it and, and putting it into words. Or it might be, uh, you know, for your own well-being as well. You know, writing in a way that makes you feel freer and lighter and lets you enjoy life and live, laugh, love, as a, as a great scholar once said, once scribed into a stone tablet right i'm gonna go now before i start doing a a, a a type five of improved bits i hope you're well i hope you're happy look after yourself you are deeply valuable and as much as i want you to write and enjoy writing uh you can step away from writing and never write again and it will not impact your worth and value one whit because as a human being you just matter okay and for you i wish you most dearly, a wonderful week of writing.